You're listening to The Path Podcast on Mountain Bike Radio. Welcome to another episode of The Path Podcast. Uh, we are joining you today from uh, The Path Bike Shop in Tustin. We're at the Tustin location tonight. Kind of cool. We're in a really cool bike shop after hours. No one is around. And we're uh, looking at a lot of cool bikes and a lot of cool parts. Kind of reminds me of the old days, Nathan, with you and I after hours when you used to work here. <laughs> uh hanging out i think i can remember a few times cruising by at like nine o'clock at night with people still being here working on bikes oh we used to work late into the night oh yeah oh yeah um, i used to i used to when i get a new bike or any employee got a new bike it's like oh i'm staying late tonight i'm building my new bike <laughs> that was always super fun i can remember a, a couple of pretty late night building uh sessions with tawny and uh and even uh getting i think i was your first bike fit uh customer a while back for sure that shenanigans way. yeah from like a 11 to 2 <laughs> all right Including so socialization <laughs> so what's going on at, the, on at the shop these days so hey that demo fair is still taking shape uh for february 27th at the live oak shop from nine to three looks like we've got rocky mountain pivot bmc and in all likeliness intense and we're still working on some other manufacturers kona is also uh, kona that is that's, that's in that's going to be amazing. We're filling up. Vendors take note. We are filling up. <laughs> Get your tickets. So if you want to show up, bring a, like we said, bring a license, um, your your pedals, although sometimes people have pedals or the manufacturers will have pedals, your helmet, and um, come ready to do some riding uh, on, on some of the local trails out there. So that's, uh, that, that's pretty much uh, what's going on at the shop, uh, up, upcoming... Uh, big stuff. There's some racing going on out in Fontana this weekend, and uh, that's um, Southridge USA is the is the sponsor, or I should say is the is the race organizer out there in Fontana. Stop by our tent and say hi to our team. Say hi to our racers. We'll cheer you on if you cheer us on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure we'll be out there on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, a lot of down. Looks like Sunday's going to be the downhill races. And uh, just as a nod to our, our last week's guest, uh, the, the Bells, uh, there's some Supercross going on this weekend in Anaheim, too. Our, yeah, An- Anaheim. Oh, yes, Anaheim as well. Um, A1. A1, yeah, <laughs> that's that's right. That's going to kind of be the talk of the town a little bit. Uh, yeah, Anaheim Stadium here in Southern California is the first uh, Supercross uh, stop of the season. And uh, unfortunately, we've had this very odd thing going on in California and freaking out. There's water falling from the sky in southern california I, forming I puddles i don't understand <laughs> running down the drainage <laughs> it's, it's storm watch <laughs> 2016 uh so yeah it's uh we'll see how the race pans out uh I, definitely i mean for the mountain bike racing out at fontana and for the supercross uh i a lot of the guys i hang around or follow the supercross stuff pretty close and uh, they're pretty concerned it's going to be a mud fest yeah that's true and actually if it's it's supposed to another couple of storms coming through tomorrow uh wednesday and and probably thursday too so it could leave fontana uh, pretty soggy as well yeah I, socal uh, might need a whole whole show on tactics for riding in wet conditions <laughs> where to ride wet chain lube you know no one no one knows around socal to use wet chain lube when it's <laughs> raining you know yeah because it doesn't rain yeah 
And also, it's just been absolutely frigid. I mean, I'm talking, it is apocalyptically cold. It might be 52 degrees. I'm freezing. <laughs> I, I can't stand it. was 37 at my house the other morning. <laughs> oh, nice. It's Arctic cold as we're talking to the people. and or We're going to send this to Ben, and he's in one of the Dakotas, probably in Where sub-zero really, temperature. Where it is cold. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the truth. I, I went on a ride this Saturday morning, and I think it got down into the low 30s, and I literally thought about turning around about 15 miles into the ride and and i I thought about the rest of the country and i looked up and i saw the the sun peeking over onto a couple of the trails and i said it'll be fine once in a while it does get actually cold around here um i made my friend from jersey who owns halter cycles admit that it was cold on a socal trail ride once (laughs) nice nice should we get to those listener questions? Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, definitely. And uh, here's a little fair warning. We're going to get into the questions. Hey, moms, let's break out the rubber pillowcases tonight. Little pricks are going to be counting tears, not sheep. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> so uh, we've had quite a few listener questions from you guys. We have been compiling them. Um, and so tonight we were going to uh, use some of those for top- topics of uh, discussion. So first up, we've got DK from Idaho. DK's question is this. Is 26 dead? That's a loaded question. DK knows that it's been done to death, but he would like to hear our take on it. He supposes that from a retail standpoint, it pretty much is done. He's got a pretty sweet Turner 5 spot with a 150 revelation on it. I'm familiar with that setup. It's pretty sweet. I can understand why you'd be hung up on 26 with that setup. For sure. So, you know, I'm going to, I think the, the, for me, the way I would want to talk about this is from the perspective of where is it not dead? So I think it's not dead for dirt jump. For sure. Absolutely. It's not dead for trials. Yep. And, and jibbing. Urban riding, <laughs> a blast from the past term. There, um, it it may not be dead for certain types of park riding and slope style riding, and I don't know how many people at the Red Bull Rampage are on twenty seven and a half yet. I don't know the answer to that question. It's probably I would say probably the Red Bull Rampage is in large part a function of the sponsors and the premium downhill bike of that right. given brand. You know, right. for example, like the Kona rider is going to ride the most premium downhill Kona, and right now that's twenty six. But are, is that Rampage guy? If given the choice, is he going to get the process one sixty seven, which is a twenty six? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, true. Quite possibly. So there is. I mean, there are twenty rel- some maybe relevant twenty sixes on the market, like the Kona process one sixty seven. From a retail standpoint, tires. I mean, the path is going to continue to stock twenty six inch tires for for some time to come, I think. Um, less and less are we going to be stocking a lot of forks and high-end aftermarket custom wheels and stuff like that. But replacement parts, for sure. And then also, you know, that transition size between tw- you know between kids' bike and adult bike, we do some kind of extra small Konas that are 26-inch wheels. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a, a member in my, my fam that's riding a a Kula Supreme from from the past with a set of 
Sweet in, bike yellow. Sweet bike yellow, yes. I mean, uh, that's a le- that, that uh, bike's got legacy. Yeah, Lazy, Lazy Maxwell. <laughs> <laughs> I was honored to be able to take that into my family, and it's it's got set up with Envy wheels now. Nice. <laughs> nice. But yeah, I mean, DK, when you come to SoCal, we'll have tires for your five spot. We'll have fat, tubeless, 26-inch tires, maybe something faster rolling and smaller for the rear. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things uh, I just wanted to point out is that the evolution between 26 and 27, 5, uh, this is for the people who have old bikes, right? Or or let's say someone coming into the sport that's buying their buddy's old used 26 bike. Um, the What we would consider, as, I guess, modern geometry, long, low, and slack. There's plenty of 26 bikes out there that still got the benefit of those um, upgrades. So I guess if you're if you're looking to upgrade a bike and you have a 26 that you're really enjoying, um, 27.5 is awesome. A lot of the new bikes are really, really nice. But there are, especially if it was in kind of the latter year or two of the 26 development, they're still relevant bikes, and they still probably handle really, really well. Well, and there's that thing. You know, a bike's a bike. It's mostly the rider. I mean, we we make our, our living discussing the nuance in the difference between bicycles and it's a lot of fun. And sometimes there are gains to be had. However, at the end of the day, we all kind of know that like me on my worst day on a crappy bike or on a great bike is going to lose to me on my best day on a crappy bike. Mm -hmm. And that's for me, that's just me. That's not even getting into the range of other people. Yeah, for sure. But I guess, uh, you know, like I said, the new bikes are awesome. But don't feel like you are just totally off the curve because you have 26-inch wheels instead of 27.5. Like, there's a lot of good handling 26 bikes. There's a lot of good handling 27.5 bikes. And if you have a 26 bike that you're just really happy with, be happy with that bike. That's cool. And 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 Tawny brought up, we're, you know, Pat's going to continue to stock tires. One of the unfortunate things, I think we're seeing the new tire development and new fork development has pretty much stopped on 26 size um, sort of i mean you can get a pike 26 you can get definitely. a fox 34 26 i think uh, i imagine even, even if you can't the, having a pike available is is definitely nice exactly um and uh so i i guess most of the new cutting edge development is going to lean towards 27.5 a lot move as things move forward and probably lean more and more as things progress but as far as shutting that down i mean let's be realistic you can still get seven speed cassettes relax you'll be good (laughs) exactly yeah Um, and just to wax you know a little bit reminiscent on on a couple of of personal examples you know i i sold a a santa cruz trc uh recently and maybe within the about a year ago and that's a 26 inch low bottom bracket uh, maybe not quite as long in the in the top tube or reach but that bike was a ripper and i I found myself actually looking on eBay and, and Pink Bike a couple times to see if I can find a replacement for my son. <laughs> You'll be done waxing poetic about that old old bike soon, Auk, when you yeah. get your new 5010. Uh, that's the truth. I So for those of you out there, you know, we've been talking a lot about the new 5010 and Bronson 2s that came out uh, a little bit ago. And uh, I, I've got one on order, and hopefully it comes in here soon. And, and the strange stuff stops falling from the sky so we can get back out, out on the trails and start riding. <laughs> Definitely. After after some lengthy drives to rides and long rides and long discussions, I think 
I think I helped Ock uh, <laughs> flesh out his uh, his quiver and where the new bike needed to fit. That's the truth. But yeah, get, and exactly what Nathan was saying about you know twenty six inch bikes too. Like if you've got a bike that you really enjoy, or even if you're looking to pick up a, a used uh, a bike, and there's a twenty six inch bike out there that that looks got like it's got appealing geometry, go for it. I mean, I think there might be one on Craigslist around here of of past fame made by Iron Horse. (laughs) That's right. Ah, Sanjay picked that up. (laughs) Just remember to love the bike you ride. That's the truth. Love the bike you ride, regardless of wheel size. So next up, we've got John. So John would like to know if Nathan's new highball is 27 and a half or 29. Yeah, so uh, so just to clarify, my my new highball um, is a 29. And, uh, in all fairness, uh, because of the kind of the season and, um, I haven't been focusing much on XC racing. I've really only ridden that bike maybe twice so far. Um, I have it, you know, kind of locked and loaded and ready when I'm ready to start doing some XC stuff, but, um, I've done a couple of rides on it and I'm pretty happy with it so far, but mine, I have a, I'm 5'11 and, uh, it is an extra large 29. Okay. So John. 29. John also John recently got a 27 and a half highball. He likes it. He hasn't raced it yet. He plans to use it for what he would characterize as endurance light, which is 40 to 100 kilo, kilometers. And I like how he mixed the uh <laughs> the, the units there. That's yeah, between solid. 40 miles to 100 kilometers. Nice. And Barbarian some units. 100k or less gravel events. He races at a finisher's pace. He's wondering what thoughts Nathan put into wheel size choice on his highball. He recognizes that 29 is the norm for XC endurance, but went with the 27 and a half for a few reasons. One, the 69 degree head angle. Two, coming from a 26 or Epic, he felt that it might be closer in handling to what he was used to. It might be a wiser choice for him. Also three, at 59 he thought maybe he was in between on size for a 29er. So let's tackle those one at a time. On the 69 degree head angle, I want to point out that um you have to consider the mechanical steering trail and on the 29 you're going to get a more stable steering even with a steeper head angle. So that might need to be looked at through that filter. Yeah, definitely. And in and the trail um Tony was enlightening us quite a bit about how trail affects things and it's frequently not a number that's listed on geometry charts, but it's just something you have to think about. And uh, just to remember that uh, head angle sizes between different wheel bikes are not um, most often not a direct comparison of of how that head angle is going to uh, affect things. On on a second question on on the transition from twenty six to twenty seven and a half versus the transition to twenty nine, I think it's a valid point. I think it's an easier transition. Yeah, definitely. And and when you look at the numbers, I think a lot of people think 26 and 27 and a half, it's an inch and a half difference. Um, just remember, when you measure things, 26 is really like 26 and a half. Realistically, when you measure it with modern tires, 26 is closer. Yeah, unless to, you run 195. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which most people don't. Um, so really, realistically, when you measure it out, it's closer to an inch difference. So um, 29er is a it's a bigger adjustment. It's a bigger leap. And so I totally think there's validity in, in making a smaller adjustment um, from 26 to 27 and a half. And then to, to the last question, 
kind of is is twenty nine a, a height dependent thing? I think it it is and it isn't. I think it's easier to fit a, a really taller person on a twenty nine than it is on a smaller wheel, where you won't have to run as much rise on the handlebar in particular. Um, you know, I'm five eight on a good day. Probably never been five eight, <laughs> and I like twenty nine. I think it for myself. It often is a great choice, and often a really fast choice. I'm the same way. I'm five eight and a quarter. Ding. Yeah, on a good day. I mean, I'm I'm a little on the taller side, but I mean that uh, I really like the twenty nine, especially for kind of like a. I feel like the wheels do carry a little momentum, so that's why it always kind of I guess carves out a spot in my mind as a cross country race machine because I've been racing 29ers in cross country off and on since I last worked at the path, which was 2003. <laughs> well, and what I like about 29 is you can, you can have, you can ride. It's a cross country race machine that you can ride elbows out more. For it sure. It needs to be leaned over. It needs to be ridden elbows out. And I like that about it. And the fact that you can run super low, low knob tires and, and light tires and still get traction and, makes it just really fast all around. Yeah, yeah. I think that's to me the the least talked about most important thing about 29 is that you can run the lightest lowest knob tire you can find and you'll still have fun and get good traction compared to smaller tires. Yeah, definitely. And what Tony's referring to is the bigger wheel diameter spreads out the tire, gets a bigger contact patch in the front to rear sense of the wheel. I think it's that, but I think it's also the added steering trail and the added bottom bracket drop and just a lot of added stability. Yeah. Right. That and bottom. I have that weird pet theory about how the tire is moving at a slower velocity, so it's like it has a has a greater touch coefficient with the ground of longer. friction and yeah. <laughs> I know this is totally parts. unvalidated weirdness. <laughs> <laughs> but I also have that theory about how a 29, you're less likely to override one suspension or the other. And I think that's pretty provable, maybe. <laughs> you want to expand on that a little bit? So because you're, because you're lower relative to basically the, the, the leverage points on the suspension, it's, it's more difficult to override the front suspension, most importantly, but also the rear suspension. When you override the front suspension, the head angle gets really steep and the bike gets sketchy right at the moment when you don't want it to. So right. it, because you're lower in the bike, you're not as up over that fork, you know, mm -hmm. and you're less likely to override it. You're more down kind of below it in it. Okay. Interesting. How, how would you say that, like, how would you translate that into, like, the feeling of it? Do you feel like it kind of rides The front and higher? rear suspension tend to move together more instead of, instead of that, there's less tendency towards the rocking horse effect. Ah, okay. There, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. So you're coming, say, coming really hot into a corner, jam on the brakes, and you're not going to get, like, maybe, it may not be the total right term, but body roll. Yeah, you're not, yeah, you're not going to get that all the way forward, all the way back, all the way forward, all the way back. You're going to get the, the wheels moving beneath you. Yeah. Okay. Or on steeper technical ass portions of trail where you're kind of like on the brakes, off the brakes, you're not going to get this like. Yeah. Dump. And according to my theory, this is all a function of bottom bracket drop. The more bottom bracket drop you have, the more I feel like the wheel, the suspensions tend to work together without the rider having to work to stay really balanced between them as, as hard. That makes sense. You know, one, one thing I just wanted to add is uh, maybe uh, three years ago or so, kind of a really core 
uh, spot in my bike stable was a, a 130 mil travel 29 bike. And um, just, I guess, a uh, lot of benefits of the 29. Um, the one downside that I found is I, even with the more stability, totally agree with that high speed. It was great. But man, when I really wanted to corner, like, I mean, like knifing berms, like just barreling that bike into hard corners every once in a while that 29er that bigger wheel felt like it got a hold of me and ripped the bars out of my hand or Mm. folded under me and i'd kind of go over the bars so like if you're an aggressive 26 or 27.5 rider and you use those slashing turns slashing turns exactly and uh the 29er i had to give myself just a split second when i come into those scenarios and remind myself like either really get a hold of those bars or really like kind of iron out that corner, but you could. Well, and from a strictly racer standpoint, there's usually a faster line with more of an arc and less of less of a apex. A- absolutely, but every once in a while, especially on but it's some tight, never as sick. No, no, <laughs> for sure. There's some tight trails where uh, you get a little playful and you want to jab corners. And uh, a couple of times, I felt like uh, I uh, get all bunched up. Yeah, I vi- I violated uh, that agreement me and the 29er had at that point and it decided to spit me on the ground so john's th- closing thoughts to get back to john's question um you know do we think 27 and a half is a reasonable choice for 100k or less endurance events especially if he holds no podium expectations and you know for sure without question is it the best choice for you that's a that's also a great question but it's without question a reasonable choice yeah, definitely. There's a lot of there's a lot of people racing 27.5s in a cro- in cross country on the international scene. And once again, like many of these questions, um he's talking about his race uh scenarios because obviously people put a lot of weight and effort into that, but you're riding that bike, you know, 80% of the time 80, elsewhere, 90, maybe more. 95% of the time not racing. So it really depends on kind of the whole story of how you're going to use the bike, but um definitely not not an inappropriate choice. And this is something too, John, that we, you know, we wish you were kind of here talking to us so that we could kind of maybe work through some of these. There's there's a dialogue that happens here. So I'm sure there's a lot of other thoughts about, you know, just a feel that you you had that you might like the 27 better for for whatever reason. You were more comfortable on it when you threw the leg over it. And that goes a long way too. So, yeah. so again, I think that just you know, I'm agreeing with Nathan and Tani here about, you know, that's completely reasonable for anything from 40 miles to 100K. Yeah, no no problem at all. So is this a follow-up question we've got here from Alan? Uh, I believe it is. Alan Alan had first asked, uh, we, we had we had hit on his question in a previous podcast about um, whether or not your experience with Trans-Provence. And whether or not you Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alan asked us another question. I don't know if this was a follow-up. I think this was just an additional question. Okay, so his current setup is a Yeti SP66 with a Hans Dampf. Hans Dampf in the front. Um, purgatory grid in the rear. Mm-hmm. He's not regularly riding super rocky terrain. Um, and he's been fine with the standard single ply hard casings, snakeskin, EXO, etc. So he doesn't think he needs the uh, super gravity or double down or anything like that. His local trails are pretty smooth, but he does travel to some rocky areas. Um, he's happy with his current setup, but he's wondering if things could be even better. The main thing he's thinking about is getting a little bit more cornering bite. He really loves the feel of the minions on his DH bike, 
He's wondering if he could get a little more bet, a little better cornering than the purgatory, but still with good rolling. So, I mean, that's always going to be a trade off question. And yeah. And like, yeah, you can get more, more bite. You're probably going to give up some rolling or some breaking traction. You know, I, uh, one thing also that he was bringing up, and I think he might have been responding to Ock and I kind of talking about uh, super heavy tire casings, and like I've I've chosen to run some double double casing tires or some super gravity tires. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I want to couch that a little bit better. Is um, that is for me? That is for a pretty serious enduro race mentality, and that's when in gnarly terrain in, over multiple days. Yes. With long, long courses where a flat could likely still happen and you could still be in contention. It's a whole different mindset. Yeah, definitely. And, and even on a shorter race, but like the, the enduro race where I would totally, I still ran those tires was, um, I raced the, the mammoth enduro and mammoth is pretty rocky, pretty burly. It's a, it's a, right. There's some solid elevation. So, uh, I was talking a lot about these super heavy casing tires and how I really like them, but I really like them in that added mental security of a race condition. And if I was not racing that bike or or basically testing and planning to race that bike, I would have no problem running the EXO or the trail skin. In fact, I probably would to save the weight um, because when you're trail riding, if you get a flat, you fix it. No big deal. Um, but if you're racing and you get a flat because you cut a sidewall because you wanted to save 200 grams on the tire, you're going to feel like a bonehead. Right. Well, and to add to what Nathan said, to me, nothing really adds confidence to a bike like extra meat. You know, you, you get some dual ply downhill tires on kind of an enduro bike. And that to me is a lot of the way towards a full downhill bike. And so I absolutely really, really appreciate a solid feeling tire that can take a hit and not rip and not fold and not feel squirmy and that you can run at low pressures. And I hate pedaling that tire. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Definitely. So, so we all just live in this constant, constant, you know, balancing act, trying to find the right balance there. Well, and I- to sum, to sum up Alan's question, he really wants to know our thoughts on rear tires that roll well, balance grip and rolling resistance, which is a favorite topic of mine, actually, mm-hmm. all the way back from the days of the Larson TT. <laughs> the nice. Larson TT, I love it. Um, so to me, um, I've been experimenting with that a lot lately. Um, for Right now, my my choice there and the, and the right balance for me is the Minion DH rear with the EXO casing for my local trail conditions. And the thing that I think is both beautiful and horrible about tires is that means absolutely nothing to most of you. <laughs> you know, actually, every, th- every time I find a tire that I love recommending, I find 10 people who hate that tire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, uh, uh, something that we, I will talk about soon. And, um, uh, this weekend I got the opportunity to demo a, um, a Bronson. I'm sure a lot of you are very interested to hear about that. And we, we will get to that topic a little later. Um, but in the context of tires, it had um, two Minion DHRs front and rear. Mm. And uh, on the ride that I did, I went up to the San Gabes and um, uh, I was used to riding my Nomad with a Magic Mary on the front. And the first half of the ride is on loamy, loose terrain. And that I was a like, little XC for the front, in my <laughs> yeah. opinion. It's yeah. a great uh, rear tire. <laughs> well, so the first part of the ride, super loamy, super loose. And I was like, 
God, I want I, this bike just needs a magic Mary on the front. And then the second half of the ride got into very decomposed granite over hard packed. And the tire, I was like, these tires are working great. So it's a great tire for that condition. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're going to just get folding knobs on the magic Mary in those conditions. Exactly. So, and basically to reinforce what Tani was saying, so condition dependent. And I know I, I had a complete condition change on a ride and a tire at the start of the ride i was like this sucks i really want a different tire the second half of the ride i was like i'm pretty happy i have this tire <laughs> another tire i really like in that category is the rock razor the schwalbe rock razor available in you know a couple of different casings for different different needs yeah and it's a it's a good fast rolling tire with a lot of volume and good cornering knobs and it has kind of an oozing driftiness to it it's not it's real predictable doesn't have any kind of sudden give and it really kind of just feels like as it as it as it get, starts to initiates a drift it's kind of an oozing initiation and less of a kind of breaking of traction yeah sounds like your comments on the larson tt <laughs> yeah but definitely a lot more um square profile and cornering knobs exactly. I, i've actually been running that rock razor in a gosh in a in a couple different applications i had a a snakeskin version on a on a 130 mill travel 29er um decently fast or actually you know well good good fast rolling tire uh decent weight uh cornering knobs was worked well um but more recently i've been riding uh the uh what is that the the super super yes. gravity yeah you have the the rock razor super gravity on the back of your 153 exactly and <laughs> just and filling you in on exactly, your setup thank you <laughs> And like Nathan says, it's pretty, it's pretty trail specific. And so, you know, riding that, uh, up in the San Gabriel's where, you know, you have 25 minute downhills, uh, changing conditions, you know, like from loamy soft conditions to really gnarly rock, rock gardens, uh, just long, long, um, downhills. Um, and I, I have to agree with, with Tawny that, that extra casing, uh, and that extra bit of meat beneath you really, really is confidence inspiring. And so I found that that the mix of the rock razor with the heavier casing on that type of long trail, uh, really is, is confidence inspiring. Yeah. Um, kind of along those lines, one tire that I had, uh, had talked about that I'd been running, um, I ran a, a single ply, um, Riddler, WTV Riddler on the back of my 5010. And um, I actually, unfortunately, I cut that tire because um, the casing is, it's a, it's a single ply. It's like less than an EXO. I was kind of disappointed about that. But the tread pattern, um, and one of the things he was asking about is kind of like breaking power of using one of these kind of semi-slicks. I actually, f- and I'm going to couch this just a little bit in saying that part of their marketing material was they said it's actually a surprisingly good braking tire. And I tried to take that and look at it very carefully, and I I believe I felt that. And I, I believe that the Riddler being that kind of semi-slick style tire did break really well. Once again, in Southern California, we're riding a lot of hard pack, um, but I felt like it actually was a surprisingly good braking tire. I would say the same thing about that super grav casing um, a rock razor. I would go out and say that rear braking traction on a trail or enduro bike is pretty low on my list of qualifications. <laughs> it's I, a- I mean, and above, I mean, above it are um, rolling speed in particular, um, cornering traction, 
and more more importantly how the tire does drift when it does drift than whether or not it drifts you know is it predictable and kind of what are the characteristics of how it gives way and can i get it to give way when i want to on that rear tire yeah, yeah. well and maybe you know what um uh, what Alan is talking about here, where most of the time he's riding in pretty smooth, but sometimes travels to rocky areas. Maybe this will be a little bit, little tangent into uh, thoughts on Sedona. Um, I took the same setup on the Process 153. I've got a, a double down Minion DHF um, on the front and a uh, Super Grav Rock Razor on the rear. Took that out to Sedona. Um, you know, on the long rides. <laughs> It, it's a bear to pedal those those tires around all day, but it's a group ride, so you know it's it's okay. Yeah. And what I found was there's some pretty pretty burly downhill segments out in in Sedona. Uh, a lot of rocky, punchy climbs with um, not super sustained downhills, but there were some pretty technical uh, waterfall type sections. And um, never felt like I needed more uh, braking bite on that rear tire. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Should we move on to Mike? Yeah. Okay, so we got Mike. He's been listening to our podcast. It helps him get through work, and we appreciate that. <laughs> um, he rides a Foes, an F27.5 with a Fox Taos 34, 130, 160. And he's interested in this new Foes mixed wheel size bike. It's a 29-inch front wheel and a 27-and-a-half rear wheel, the Foes mixer. Um, he notes that it's been, it's been getting good review, reviews. Um, he's, he's wondering how feasible it would be to put a 150-120 Taos 29er fork on the bike on the front of his F27-and-a-half versus doing the new mixer. And... uh He's guessing would mess with the geometry if he tried to do that, you know, put the put the twenty nine inch fork on his current bike. And um we'll come back to that in a sec. He would take ten millimeters of spacers out from under the handlebar to help offset the extra height, which I think, you know, from a fit perspective that it'd help, but it wouldn't get him there. And uh he's interested in our opinions on on would this work or would it be too big, a compromise on the original frame design. So I think my experience on on putting a 29 inch wheeled fork on a 27 and a half inch wheeled bike is that you have to subtract somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 millimeters of travel from the fork to get kind of the same bottom bracket height ride somewhat the right the same kind of the bike to sit level right and um so you'd be close yeah you'd, the bike could be a little bit kind of popped up in the front and I'm more, you can get that handlebar low enough with the right stem and bar, but I'm more worried about the bottom bracket height and the head angle. Yeah. And, and, and just something, you know, I've kind of played with some of the CAD files and Tony, you've done a lot of fits and you can comment on this is um, just a good rule of thumb. Let's say wheel, wheel size issue aside, if you take a bike and you bump it up, bump up the fork 10 millimeters let's say you have a 150 bike you go to a 160 bike a lot of people think like oh i need to take 10 millimeters of spacer out no that's not correct you need to compensate like 
it's really only about half that because you're lifting up the bottom bracket in, in and also your butt with it. So it's only about half because think of it as a lever. And you're sagging less or more or it's a different sag. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, sag aside, but let's just say you bring up the front 10 millimeters. Remember, that's bringing up the bottom bracket about 5 millimeters. So really your right. bar is... ever important mm-hmm. saddle to handlebar height relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that only goes up about half of what you bring up the front end uh, in a general rule of thumb. Third to half. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, just something to consider. A lot of people think it's one-to-one. Remember, your feet and your butt are coming up with it. So I think one of the beauties of a 29-inch front wheel is kind of the added bottom bracket drop drop from the front axle. You won't get quite as much of that as if you actually got the Foes mixer, I'm pretty sure. Not having <laughs> looked at the geometry charts, I'm pretty sure. Um, and I think – so So I think the short answer is it'll work. It'll probably pr- be pretty fun. It probably wouldn't be quite as 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 optimal as the mixer that's meant for it. And then there's the whole discussion of the pros and cons of mixed wheel size bikes, which I think are really cool. I like the idea. I've ridden, I've, I've had one. I've had a lot of friends that have had them. Um, in some ways, I think that they are the best of both worlds on the downhill and the worst of both worlds on the uphill. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, especially when really optimized, you get a, a, a and to kind of, kind of prove my point i would say that for the ultimate up wheel bike uphill bike you would have a huge rear wheel and a tiny front wheel right mm. right that's almost like a i almost envision like a time trial bike in the tour de france when it's just leaning in and drilling yeah you need you want you want traction and rollover on that rear wheel and you want that front wheel to be light and out of the way yeah yeah definitely so um with the twenty, with the big front wheel, you get lots of front wheel traction and stability. You get a front wheel that tracks very well. You get a little bit of added bottom bracket drop where you're really in the bike. Um, and if it's really designed for it, you can get the shorter chain stays of a smaller rear wheel, and um, maybe a little bit more travel with those short chain stays. A weird kind of idiosyncrasy of the whole thing is that on my my mixed wheel size bike, one of, that I had at one time, it was a 29 in the front and a 26 in the back. When I leaned it over really hard on high traction surfaces like concrete, I could feel the rear wheel scooting underneath me because it has a it has a you know that smaller right. wheel has a basically more more steer to it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. And nice. I really could feel it. It was really bizarre, and it made you want to kick it out and slide it out. But, but I think in in normal mountain biking conditions, the traction's not quite good enough to, for that to come out of the out of the wash. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, I've never played with a mixed wheel size bike. Same, same I have. Yeah, Tani is our our expert on mixed. I would wheel say size. lots of front wheel stability, great steering control, great steering traction, great great front wheel braking traction. With a great manualing, flickable um, rear end and a wheel that doesn't get in your butt on steep stuff, it's it's great for downhill. Nice. If I would can... say for I, I have a theory that the optimal downhill bike might have a 29 inch front wheel and maybe a 27 and a half inch rear. I don't Ooh, know. interesting. Ooh. And the ultimate uphill bike might be the other way. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Jim McNeil and Rabi, if you're listening, maybe someday we can get you guys in and here. And Carl Haas and Jaeger, the Haas. The Haas. If you, any of you three are out there and care to come by and talk about mixed wheel sizes, we're more than Just a few people you. we've hung out with have done mixed wheel sizes. and most. So some of these people have done the 29-inch wheeled bike with the 27.5-inch rear wheel. And some of these people have done the 27.5-inch wheeled bike with the 29-inch fork and front wheel. Or a 26-inch bike with a 29-inch fork and front wheel. So these are all ways that you right. can go about this. And I like I like when you start with the smaller wheel size and, and run a shorter travel fork with the bigger front wheel because I feel like getting the shortest possible chain stay is a big part of the, the, the game. Yeah, def- definitely. Uh, cool. Well, I hope we... Shed some light on your question, Mike. Uh, he sent that uh, question a while back, and once again, thanks for being patient and and uh, listening to the show. And glad we got to it. So next we have Christine, and uh, she listened to the Larissa Connors episode, and like us, she loved it. <laughs> I mean, we love Larissa. We love hanging out with her. We were we, we thought it was we thought it was fun. Um. Yes, we agree that Larissa is a firecracker. (laughs) Wholeheartedly. Um, Three questions. The the average male, the question number one, there's this assertion that the average male has a long torso and relatively short legs, which is true of two of the three males here. That's true. The average female has a short torso and relatively long legs, which is true of all of the women of my dreams. (laughs) It is... It's it's um, Christine's understanding that mountain bike designers and manufacturers are increasingly moving toward longer top tubes, and it seems counter to what women need. Um, she notes that women are a small sector of mountain bike purchasing and therefore of limited interest to designers. And I would say, actually, Christine, we feel like we've already got the the men captive, and it's you who are after as an industry. Um, I think that in sales meetings and design meetings around the industry, there's a lot of talk of capturing um, interest from, from female and women riders. Um, And we have seen here in the shop, some examples of some women who kind of, I mean, for lack of better words, were victim of this trend of longer top tubes, especially some shorter women where, sizing down you know the new the new trend is you know get whatever reach you need and um just get the size that has the reach you need but if you're so short that that the smallest size is still too long of reach that's a problem yeah that's 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 what i was going to say is basically like you know if you're a woman and you're shopping men's bikes and you're concerned about the length shop them on length don't shop them on seat tube length or or even what they're called in the size but tawny brings up a good point is if you're so short you're basically bottoming out their offering. So, you know, Christina is a taller rider. She's 5'9", and um, she feels like the trends are moving away from her needs. And she wants to know, are there any good mountain bike frames being designed and manufactured for the geometry of a woman as opposed to their cosmetic interests? Um, And then she goes on to mention that, like, Juliana... Seem designed only for the height of women. Well, the Julianas are the same bikes as the as the Santa Cruz 
um, unisex or bail bikes. They're just different colors with different saddles and handlebars. Yeah, the geo the geo is exactly the same. But to Santa Cruz's point, I think they are a great fit for a wide variety of men and women. Um, to, Chris, to to answer Christine's question, um, Giant is absolutely designing bikes more in the vein of what Christine's talking about with with um, a little bit longer head tubes to accommodate for the fact that the saddle is going to be higher with the longer legs and a little bit shorter reaches. Um, and they're great bikes with lots of standover. My wife pointed out to me that um, women don't like to get hit there where the top tube hits a person any more than men do. <laughs> no, no one gets likes getting hit there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I found that to be a really illuminating thought as a small, as a young boy, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, it, girls had that issue as well. I mean, yeah. I mean, without having to go and say nuts. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Does that, so, so to go on with Christine's question, does that mean as a tall woman, the strategy is look for a suitable frame and build from there, which leads to the next question. The one by drivetrain has become common. It may work for a powerful female, female like Larissa Connors, but for an intermediate rider who faces hilly and mountainous terrain, again, the industry appears to move, be moving away from the needs of a female. So I think to, to the question about gearing, if you don't need the tall gearing to go fast on the flats and the downhills, you can probably get low enough gearing by running a 28 tooth or 30 tooth chain ring or a or, 26 or even, yeah even there's i've there's 26 offerings out there as well i actually for very hilly terrain i on a 29er i love to run a 26 yeah chain ring up front and if that's not low enough we can convert you to a two by 11 with 24 in the front and 42 in the back boom yeah and and you know with our ability to customize bikes that's not a big deal. And and just a quick comment, I was a two by two by ten last year on my enduro bike, and I rigged my bike up to use the new style side swing Shimano front derailleur. Holy crap, those things work good. So not a lot of people have been paying close attention to front derailleurs these days. But if for some reason you want to run two by eleven, um, that new Shimano front derailleur is. Pr- has such an amazingly light action. It's really cool. So for those who haven't seen the side swing front derailleur, it's a, it's, it's different. Um, and the cable, the cable comes straight into the, the housing comes straight into the derailleur. Yeah. Right? The, the housing comes straight into the derailleur and it enters from the front of the bike or from the front, front of the derailleur basically. And the, and it's neither a top swing or a bottom swing. It's a side it's swing. swing. It's a side swing. But the, the main thing is that not um, to be confused with top pull or bottom pull. Don't ever come in the shop and confuse those two again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I get the, with the side swing derailleur, the the biggest thing you'll notice is um, it's so light. I and of course I didn't measure this, but just feeling it, it suddenly feels like the action, the, how hard you have to push on the paddle, is lighter now on the front derailleur than the rear derailleur. It's super super light. I'm a fan of that. Yeah. I'm a fan of light action, and and that is part of the reason why I'm not a well. It just seems like on some of the new Shimano 11-speed stuff, it's hard to get the action real light. Yeah, I've noticed that for me, Shimano um, Shimano rear shifting action got stiffer with the advent of their um, 
clutch derailleurs, which was kind of disappointing. I think that's a factor, but even when you turn the clutch off. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's when they switch their leverage ratio. So I'm thinking nine speed. It's counterintuitive, though. They went with a lower leverage ratio. It's supposed to get lighter action. I think it went the other way. I think oh, they, they, pull, went, they, they went back higher again? They pulled more cable. So, um, yeah, with the back 10 higher. and 11 speed, they pull more cable, which then I believe is making it. I I could be wrong on this. I'm not like 80% sure. Um, but either way, I've noticed the same phenomenon that modern shimano stuff has doesn't have that magical light action that say nine speed used to have and uh but that being said well and then the 11 speed SRAM stuff is pretty light action yeah definitely yeah 11 speed SRAM stuff i would say is lighter action on the rear but that side swing front derailleur with the shimano um the new shimano front derailleur so in other words if you're going to go two by something um that side swing front derailleur will make you want to fire off front shifts much more conveniently and much more frequently. <laughs> it's very, very nice. Um, and uh, so anyway, that's a comment about the, uh, you know, her question about uh, running one by 11. If you don't feel like you can pull it and you need the range, go two by. It's still really nice. Definitely. And at five nine, Christine, you may not be bottoming out um, as, as you maybe size down uh, a frame size to to get that reach to where you where you think you might want it or need it, uh, and still be able to get yeah. The right. Don't be afraid to show a lot of seat post as long as you're not above that max limit line. Yeah, and especially with I think it's great. You you yeah. always can. It's great to show a lot of seat post. <laughs> Definitely, and and with with today's modern six inch dropper posts, they're super long. Um, you can you can show a lot of post. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to bring up, talking about bikes that are going longer, 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 there's a lot of bikes that are going longer, but there are brands that keep their bikes shorter. Um, I The one that comes to mind is Pivot. Pivot does not really run really long bikes. They tend to go shorter. Um, so just take a look at the brand, and I think you almost see certain brands kind of lean one way or the other. Like Kona runs typically long bikes on um, some of their more cutting-edge enduro bikes. Santa Cruz is kind of moderately long but they're definitely not pegging the the needle um but kona's pushing it transitions pushing pushing it i think what you're gonna actually find is oddly enough bikes that come out of the pacific northwest are going to be pegging it bikes from the santa cruz area of california are going to be more mid and then it seems like pivot is off in arizona and they're kind of (laughs) short Sort of, although sometimes I mean the 429 SL is long. It was long for its class when it came out, and even kind of, sort of, still is. And I'm I'm thinking kind of in the enduro class. I think like oh, yeah. the uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah, Mach yeah. Six is really short in right. the enduro in the enduro category. Pivots a short reach. Um, Tall bottom bracket. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, th- <laughs> take you know. Uh, familiarize yourself with geometry charts. It sounds like Christine's already familiar with it. Look at those geometry charts and and don't pay as much close attention as to the height recommendation and start looking at looking at the dimensions that you want and and um, look at brands, look at bike offerings, look at that reach number and and try to zone in on a bike that you think would uh, be great for that. And there, and once again, if they offer a a build package that you're happy with, no need to build something from scratch. And I'll give you the same advice, Christine, that I give a lot of people, which is in a perfect world, my opinion is you figure out what would be the best stem length for you to run and you have a bike fitter help you figure out what reach you need to run that stem length in a perfect world and then you figure out what bikes 
would fit you well yeah on that based on that reach and and that's basically how i built my highball or how i chose my highball um it's a cross-country race bike and where i want my bars for a cross-country race bike i wanted around a 70 80 millimeter stem and so i i backed it out that way and i ended up buying a bike that was recommended for a rider two inches taller than me so most people do it by getting a bike that's pretty close in size and then st- size, you know, really dialing it in with stem length and, and hopefully not too much with saddle fore aft, mm-hmm. in my opinion. But, um, in a really perfect world, I think you know what steering characteristics you like with different stem lengths and you can get a bike that allows you to run the stem length that you want to run, especially yeah. if you're into hand, if, if, if you're into handling. Yeah. Definitely. Um, but yeah, watch those geometry charts and, and don't, uh, don't feel constrained by their height recommendations. Definitely. Those are starting points. Yeah. So next we've got Trevor and, um, he's got questions about hanging his family's eight bikes upside down. And I'd like to start by saying you're an awesome person for having (laughs) eight fam, eight bikes in your family. Um, he notes that it seems okay for road bikes and BMX, and it certainly is. And then he's worried about, um, you know, hanging mountain bikes upside down with their fork seals and hydraulic brakes. And it's a good question. Um, I would say that for the most part, it's okay to hang your bike upside down, and it's even. It kind of helps your fork feel good because it keeps the fluid moving around in the bushings and seals. Yeah, it can maybe stress the seals over a long period of time, and it can maybe help air get from the reservoirs in your master cylinders into your brake system. And arguably, if it did, you needed a bleed anyway. Yeah. it's a really complicated discussion, <laughs> <laughs> as well, usual. But are well, you going to do right? Is it, are you are you, are you going to tweak your wheels? Uh, I think my answer is I wouldn't worry about it too much, but it wouldn't be my first choice. Yeah, definitely, and I, I totally agree with Tony. Like, it's I think it's going to be fine for your fork mm-hmm. if, for some reason, you have a somewhat compromised seal on your fork. It's going to show you. Um, and once again, you should be changing your seal at that point anyway. And if your br- brakes aren't bled really well. It's going to show you. <laughs> right. So these might be issues that never manifest. And then because you hung your bike upside side down, they manifest. But the fact is they were sort of already issues. Yeah. You're not going to, you're definitely not going to damage your bike. And obviously rear shock, yeah, whatever. It can go in any configuration. Um, but, uh, you know, on the fork, it actually, to Tony's point, has some benefits. Mm-hmm. You have, it's going to keep your foam rings nice and soaked with oil. Um, and, uh, but like, you know, I'm kind of sometimes a little lazy with bleeding my brakes and my bike sits upright in my garage and there are times I'll throw it in the back of my truck and lean it down and pull it out for a ride. Notice a, it's a bubble has came, come to the top. Well, if I didn't lean my, lay my bike down, it wouldn't have come, come to light. Um, but I, it should have been something I should have taken care of anyway. And on that braking thing, you can, you can make things worse by pulling the lever while it's upside down. Yeah. Try, try not to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have a little bubble that manifests, let the bike sit upright for a while, pump the brake, and it usually at least gets you through the next ride. Um, but, uh, you're, you're just going to be have to, you're going to have to be one of those guys that, uh, keeps his, uh, 
brakes nice and tight. And then Trevor's closing question, if he upgrades to carbon wheels or full suspension, will those create issues with hanging his bikes upside down? And I'd say no, they won't. No, no, you're not, you're not going to have any, uh, any problems with that. Awesome. Um, the next one I think was just a comment. The, read it? the Lloyd question, I think, was just a comment, so we okay. can probably skip to the next Thanks one. Thanks for the comment, Lloyd. Thanks yeah. for the comment, and Josh was really happy that he's not the only person in the world that has this issue. Sounds like a weird saddle, man. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are not familiar with this saddle. We will have to do a little research, and maybe we'll, we'll discuss it at another time. Um, requires you to sit on the... Oh. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to have to look one of those up. I, I think this is going to be a later later topic of discussion. One of our listeners is sharing with us a, a very particular brand of saddle. But I, the next question is, I think, pretty good. Pretty so, interesting. So Eric says that um, our podcast is his favorite new podcast for mountain biking. And we, we thank you. Thank you. That's a very kind comment. Um, it's, it, and he thanks us for doing it. And we enjoy doing it. So thank you. Um, he has a 10-hour drive coming up. And it's going to be nothing but the Path podcast. Sweet. Um, he's been to our Tustin shop and he was impressed. And um, we thank you for the patronage and we hope to continue to impress. Um, Eric lives in Utah and he visits a lot of bike shops. And um, thank you for noting that our staff was professional. Um, Eric currently rides a Giant Trance 2014 and he loves it. Um, he's looking to add an aggressive 29 hardtail to his quiver and he's boiled up down to a Hanzo ALDL and a Santa Cruz Highball 29. Er, turn. Wait, not same category bike. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they're both hardtails that could be ridden aggressively on trails. The, this is true. <laughs> this is true. So the Hanzo ALDL is a, is seriously an enduro style aggressive hardtail, and the highball is a cross country trail bike that can be ridden pretty aggressively. Yeah, I would almost even like in my mind that the highball is, um, I would say firmly in the race. Not it's the race intended category. It's pretty XC. Pretty XC. Pretty darn XC. Mm-hmm. So both awesome bikes, and one of them probably isn't the best bike for you, depending on your situation. Or maybe is going to be the best bikes on some of the rides and not other rides. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But but since he pretensed it in saying that he's uh, he looking for it, he has a trance. But he he said he's looking to add an aggressive twenty nine hardtail. Um, and by that, maybe he means aggressive XC. It could be. It could be. Or if he doesn't, maybe he should think about that because he's got the trance. So that trance and that Hanzo may have some overlap. I mean, I mean, for some aggressive means that your handlebars are eight inches below your saddle. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I mean, aggressive is as aggressive does. Yes, this is true. And and in all fairness, in one of our earlier episodes, I had talked about considering building a, a Hanzo for cross country racing. That was going to be kind of a black sheep project, with the understanding that it, that wasn't the intent <laughs> of that bike. Um, I decided to go with a highball, but once again, this bike is for racing. Um, and uh, actually, Tony, it's—I believe you mentioned you caught a first ride on your new Hanzo aluminum. Yeah, um, got it out to Aliso Woods, and we uh, descended Five Oaks, and then Links, 
and then um car wreck and um I was just starting to forget that I was on a hardtail when we got to the bottom of car wreck. <laughs> that, that's saying something. <laughs> that, that trail is pretty darn rough. And the, the, the bottom part, one. right, where it gets really steep and chunky. And it's one of those weird sections where on the right day, on the right bike, you can ride it like it doesn't matter. And then it ma- matters. <laughs> <laughs> so one of these things, Eric... This is Eric um, speaking. Is like sometimes maybe some of the things you really like about that trance is you can ride that thing hard and aggressively, not in the XC sense. I guess you could, but in the more aggressive trail uh, sense. And so maybe you're thinking, I want a hard tail that's going to allow me to go maybe race from time to time, and but I want to be able to ride it sort of like my trance. Maybe something to consider is maybe if you're thinking you want something that you can just lean into it and go fast for two, three hours on a 40 mile to 100K ride, then, you know, maybe think about that Santa Cruz highball because that's going to really enhance your ability to lean into it and go hard fast um, for, for a long time. And have maybe a little less overlap with your trance. Agreed. Yeah. That's a really important thing is to position your next bike in your quiver. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. and also between the two that he listed, just something to consider. The Hanzo aluminum has pretty substantial chain stays and seat stays to make that rear end very tight, very stiff. Mm. And the Santa Cruz highball, the especially the new generation one. So there's been two generations of carbon fiber highballs from... Um, Santa Cruz is the original one was some of the complaints were that the bike was just overly stiff and just beat you up. The new one, um, the stays are much thinner and the, the I e- even think the front center is a little thinner. And I'm going to guess they changed the layup to make it more compliant as well. That's the beauty of carbon fiber is that, yeah. you know, you can make it stiff in one direction and, and yielding in another direction just by changing the layup. Yeah, definitely. You know, you can change the direction of the fibers. And I think one of their design intents with the new Santa Cruz highball is that it's more compliant and it's, uh, it's going to be so better for that endurance cross country racing environment. Once again, the, we're kind of hung up on the term aggressive. Does that mean aggressive, like enduro style riding? Right. That's Are you going to run 2.2 rear tire? Cause that's going to mute the compliance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. And, um, uh, but just something to consider, you know, what, what are you doing with the bike? Uh, I, I would, I think what we're saying is if you're going aggressive technical trail, go with the Hanzo. If you're going for aggressive XC racing, go with the, go with the highball. And then think about overlap of bikes as well. Yeah. Where it fits into your quiver. Exactly. And then some other great, you know, always, um, other interesting options in the category. Um, maybe a Canfield. Maybe yeah, a baller and get a, actually, a we can kind of kill two birds with one stone. There's a, a question that comes up quite a bit later in our list, and the question was distinctly uh, between the Hanzo and the EP, uh, the Canfield, and maybe that's just something okay. we could touch on. I didn't on. do my homework, but did you? <laughs> uh, I did not look up the, the geometry differences between the two. Maybe I'm, we should come back to this then. Yeah, definitely. We, uh, we, we, can, we can come back to that one later. I have it on my spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> the spreadsheet. Uh oh, it, it sounds like, 
It sounds like Ock did extra credit on his own accord. <laughs> this was done a long time ago because I actually well, did look at the EPO, but we should come back to it. I think that EPO is um as a teaser. I I think that's a legitimate option that you might want to consider. Why don't you run us through it, Eric, and then we can then we can comment. All right. So the Camfield EPO has chain stays at it's it's a carbon hardtail. So it's it's more expensive. It's more expensive. Probably what four hundred bucks more or something. At least. At least. Um, no, more than that. No, it's probably maybe. A, it's a lot more money. It's a lot more. I'm going to say it's probably almost, say the the, uh, the Hanzo but, AL is six or 700 bucks. Right. You're probably looking at eight or $900 more. That's, yeah. And so. Remember, carbon fiber by per pound is more expensive than heroin. <laughs> maybe maybe not i don't know it's really expensive chain stays very similar 16.3 inch chain stays um the, the epo is going to have a little taller bottom bracket uh actually at, at 12.6 that's actually a fairly tall bottom bracket for a hardtail yeah uh, yeah and the, the hanzo al's got a i'm guessing they were trying to keep it playful uh, yeah yeah uh, hanzo al is going to have a man 11.9 inch uh, that's my bracket. style right there yeah um, slammed. <laughs> the EPO is going to have a much slacker head angle at sixty six point eight versus sixty eight. So it's interesting. You know, you know, works head works head angle on the Hanzo maybe. <laughs> but anyways, um, front travel the the EPO is built around a one forty travel fork. Oh, that might explain the bottom bracket height. Yes, they actually. they're expecting the fork to dunk lower mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, probably similar frame weights when you start looking at the AL versus the carbon, although uh, the, the EPO is, is listed at 3.2. I bet you that AL is around 4. <laughs> I bet. I, I think you're right. You do have We three. can weigh the one over your head. There's three the hanging <laughs> over your head right now. Yeah. Oh, look, yeah. So you can get a Hanzo AL for $4.99 at the, at the Path Bike Shop. As Eric is staring literally 18 inches away from exactly. the price tag above his head. <laughs> That's just the frame. That's just the frame, right? For those of you who try to buy a bike tomorrow for $4.99. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I've got the top tube listed completely wrong here, but I, I suspect they're very similar. Um it looks like the Hanzo AL, these are medium numbers, uh, has a reach of, sorry for the barbaric units here, 17.1 uh, versus the EPO at 16.7. Uh, so, yeah, a little taller. I'm, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I would uh, I'd err towards the longer reach. Yes, that's the truth. Um, <clears throat> the stack on the AL, a little bit taller, 25 inch versus the EPO at 23.3. That's actually pretty substantially uh, taller on the stack. Uh, and then the seat tube angle, similar. You know, Hanzo AL is going to have a 75. That's a very steep seat, seat angle, which is great. It feels steep. You know, that's an interesting... Can we hold that comment? Because that, that comment? you don't even sag it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. If it's 75 unsagged, that means once you sag that front end, that thing's bumping up. Is that steep. part of why that... When I hopped on your bike, I almost felt... Like, have you ever run a bike with too short of a fork? Like, remember the old 66, uh, the Marzocchi 66 that used to be able to, like, slam that thing down to... Oh, yeah, their the climb would, it would, mode It was... would be this... According to our theory of fit, it would be the same problem. When the <laughs> fork went down on, on those bikes, your seat, your, your knee over pedal got too far forward. 
Yeah. And it created a bind up effect on your hips and stuff like that. Yeah. So something to think about maybe with a Hanzo is you might need a setback seat post for some riders. Well, if you're like Auk and I, where, you know, I run, I run a 690 saddle height from center of bottom mm-hmm. rack to top of saddle. And I know Ox within a millimeter or so mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, that doesn't give much run out for that seat angle to do its thing and get the seat back. And, um, on most bikes, I have to have my seat slid back with a back offset seat post. Right. Um, and on that bike, I'm still pushing back from there a little bit. Oh, wow. Okay. So you could, you could use a setback seat post on your Hanzo. A more setback seat post. Oh, even more with, with a set- more than a regular reverb self, which has a little bit of setback. Got it. Okay. Although maybe running the 144, riding it high in the travel might help That's a little bit. Actually, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Are you planning on uh, trying to run a 140 on that at some one point? Of the, one of the great humbling moments in my life was when I realized, based on getting schooled on an internet forum, that the head angle and seat angle have to change by the same amount every time. <laughs> 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 yep. <laughs> so the EPO versus the a- Hanzo AL, um, similar. Yeah, very similar. Uh, and, and some other ha- Canfields as well, right? The um, the Yelly. Uh, yeah, the Yelly Screamy and the Nimble Nine, and also um, the Transition um, Trans Am is in yeah. that category, and also a great bike. Um, so yeah, there's there's some fun bikes in that category. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But just remember too, that hardtail is going to remind you that it's a hardtail. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I you can ride the aggressive trail hardtails almost anywhere, but it's going to remind you that it's a hardtail. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. <laughs> On that note, I want to bring up our our note here from Gixer Flyer, who um asks if my name is Tawny like Tawny Katane. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, sorry. Well, so he finds it somewhat disturbing, especially with that soft bedroom voice. Oh, I think I think and I, I want I want to tell you it is like Tawny Katane, but it's different, and I'm glad you're disturbed. I had that I had that couch for that comment. Be afraid. Be afraid. <laughs> Be very afraid. <laughs> All right, so we're we're moving through here. More questions or. Uh, you know, I think we're, um, we're getting, you know, one thing we might, as we're kind of getting tight on time tonight, um, do we want to do a quick, uh, skip ahead just a little bit and do a quick Sedona recap? We got a couple of questions, uh, about that and maybe just wrap up the night with that. Yeah. Let's get that that Sedona envy boiling. Sedona (laughs) envy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, something we, we talked about, um, Ock and I and uh, a group of guys from the shop as well uh, did a, a big Sedona group ride maybe about a month ago. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so we, we got out there. Um, so from Southern California, it's about a about an eight hour, seven, eight hour drive out there. And um, <laughs> we, uh, okay, so we're going to go off on a tangent in a minute. I'm going to give you a quick, quick overview of our trip. We got out there, uh, Ock set up a... Uh, a VRBO for us. 
And so we got there uh, super late. We got there about three o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning and with the intent of riding Saturday. And so we got some riding in on Saturday, got some riding in on Sunday morning. Um, we stayed down in Oak Creek, which is like the little town on the south end of the Sedona riding area. So super fun. Um, we did, uh, I think, kind of a rule of thumb that a lot of people say is when you visit Sedona, you ride all the H trails. People say, oh, what are the H trails? Well, it's all the trails with the names that start with H. There's the hog. There's like high on the hog and hog heaven. Those are some of the H trails. Highline and hangover. Those are the other H, H trails. So if you're there for a weekend and you hit all the H trails, um, you're going to have a good time. Definitely. Uh, and, uh, you know, super technical riding. I think we we rode most of the day on Saturday. We did about 2,500 to 3,000 feet of climbing, and it's so intermittent and punchy in Sedona. You're just cooked. <laughs> so you're not, these aren't sustained climbs. It's more up for a few hundred feet and then down for a few hundred feet. I think yeah. the longest climb I like that style was, of riding. It is. It's and, fun. Yeah, And the, maybe the fun. longest climb of the day was 20 minutes, 25 minutes? Yeah, I think maybe? the longest climb we did was probably up to Highline is kind of a longish climb and up to the top of hangover there's that long fire road climb plus the technical climb but it's all technical it's all ledges and lots of lunges and you're stepping up ledge after ledge and over rocks and try you know you guys get blisters on your hands did not get blisters on the hands nice solid yeah um but you You do get seasoned (laughs) you do get a little bit of a raw rear end when you're riding there because you're up Ah, and down monkey butt (laughs) monkey (laughs) butt that's the truth yeah so um yeah, definitely great riding. I I you gotta ditch for- the chamois. <laughs> Mitigated by no chamois. That's the truth. I, I know. No yeah, chamois. it's my secret ninja secret. <laughs> yeah, yours and mine, Tawny. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we we had a we had a super good trip. Um, Auk, this was your first time there. It was, and it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, although my very first impression and Nathan's. You know, first impression of the VRBO uh, place uh, that he Oh, had Lord. Okay, we got to So, okay, we're going to get into the VRBO thing. All right, I'm going to give you the rundown on the VRBO. So, Ock very, very kindly took point for the whole group and set basically, you know, whenever you go on a road trip, one guy's got to set up the room and get everything paid and gather up the money. And Ock graciously did this this time. It's great, you know. So, we just have to know where and when to show up, get in the truck and show up, and we'll have somewhere to stay. So Ox sets up this VRBO and we get there at like three o'clock in the morning. All of us have been kind of sleeping on and off and taking turns driving and we get there and we're groggy and we just want to get the bikes put away and go to sleep. And we get there and look at the garage and try to open the garage and we're like, huh, that's interesting. I can't open the front. Okay. Yeah. I guess we'll get the, we got the house key and open the key to the side door of the garage. So we walk in there and as I look, I notice for a minute, I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. They had a sign on the edge of the garage door that said theater. And we're like, huh, it's kind of weird. I was like, oh, they must watch movies or something right. in their garage. The theater. The theater. Man cave? We open this thing up, and there is, I, I first t- turn to the left, I see like 20 seats set up, like a, like a, like a audience, like a theater. <laughs> and you're like, what the hell? And I turn to the right, and there is, this whole garage is converted to a magic theater. Stage, complete with stage. Stage, everything, like a, a, like a crystal ball thing, all, and just accoutrements and knickknacks everywhere. And it's kind of dark, and we flipped on one of the lights. I get in there, and I'm in the garage, and I turn. There's this full size, freaky, like skeleton looking mannequin 
magician thing. Yeah, something out of the wax museum sitting there in the corner. I almost jump out of my skin at three (laughs) o'clock in the morning. And so we finally get the bikes in there and, and, you know, I guess. Where were the bodies? (laughs) Yeah, that's what we're wondering. It was a green skinned zombie magician, complete with top hat, red velvet. And I I was kind of like bringing the bike, one one of the bikes up to the garage, and I hear this scream. (laughs) <laughs> was it blood curdling? Almost. Almost. <laughs> and that was me get I was already in the garage and I turn turn to my right and this thing's standing right next to me. I, I almost crap myself. And uh at some point we finally get the bikes in there and we're just commenting like we're so tired, we're like, this is freaky. And I I'm walking out. And uh, I was the last one in. I had to lock up the garage, and Ock was walking back to the house. I turned to him. I said, don't Do you not dare leave. leave me alone near this thing. <laughs> you are waiting right there until I'm done. As a self-proclaimed connoisseur of the bazaar, I would say the pictures were bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, it was. I think some of the comments on, on Facebook were, kill it, kill it with fire. <laughs> maybe maybe we, we'll, we need to figure out a way to get these pictures to our listeners. We, we might uh, post it on the on the podcast uh, channel yeah, yeah. Slack. I, I have a few of the pictures on my Instagram feed. I'll, I will uh, hashtag them with uh, hashtag uh, the path podcast so you guys can <laughs> see some of these. But it was surreal. Um, it was apparently <laughs> the magic theater with freaky mannequin was not in the brochure on the VRBO site. It was not Anytime in the while you guys were riding on this road trip, were you having so much fun that it was hard to keep riding properly? Uh, definitely. I would say so. Yeah, it was yeah, riding the wheels off. Yeah, it was riding. It was a riding the wheels off kind of weekend, and it was. Uh, I mean that. Once again, I think. Um, uh, if you, if you, <laughs> this is the Ferris Bueller way of saying it, if you have the means, I highly recommend making the trip. <laughs> I had to slow down because of the hooting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think it was Highline. That just has a series of waterfall, like waterfall six sections, maybe what felt like seven or eight of them linked together over maybe half a mile of trail. Yeah, and and fair note, this this trail is officially rated double black diamond. And just you start you start into the first one, and it was something like some of the local local steep trails um, here. You start rolling into the first one, and you're thinking, "This is this is gnarly." But yeah. as soon as you get into it, you realize that they're constructed, and so there's every one of these as 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 gnarly as the roll-ins were. There's there's nice rollouts, clean exits, clean exits, exactly. Yeah, just one after the other, after the other, after the other, and you get done, and just it's great building a trust for a trail. <laughs> Giddy yeah, good times. Sure. Um, yeah, and the scenery like. The, you know, the red dirt, the, you know, we had a really nice weather. I think it was probably high of 60 and it was clear and not windy and sunny. And, uh, you know, you see the, uh, the red dirt with the green plants and the blue sky and it was just absolutely picturesque. Not a lot of dust. Very, not a lot of, yeah, very little dust. Very little, enough dust to layer your bike in red dust. So if you don't clean your bike right away, you're reminded of the trip for about two more weeks. Sweet nostalgia. Sweet nostalgia. All speckled on your bike. Well, and, and part of it, too, is the, the landscape uh, and the sceneries. It's it's like something out of, if you've ever visited the Grand Canyon or Zion, that kind of stratified red rock 
um, kind of layered, layered, terraced. exactly. Except instead of being a canyon or or giant giant cliffs, they're spires and and sharp hills, and it, it's like really biz- bizarre, like beautifully bizarre. So um, spires are those kind of like um, like uh, rounds. Tall, thin, kind of, yeah, a little more massive than spires, but yeah, I mean, like that, almost like chimneys, almost like that. And you know, we we rode out of the condo from Oak Creek, so you can if you stay in Oak Creek, you can ride to the trailheads. Uh, if you stay in Sedona, there's a whole nother trail system that you can you can also just ride to. You gotta love that riding to the trailhead. Exactly. Yeah, and that's one of the really cool things about Sedona, and what keeps me going back is um, it's very easy to find a hotel in town or find a VRBO near town, and uh, the whole weekend is ride in, ride out. Exactly. Like one of the nights we jumped in the cars to go have breakfast or have dinner on the other side of town, but we really, if we didn't want to, we didn't have to. Exactly. Um, you can spend the whole weekend just park your car and just pedal your bike around town to the, the trails. Time you get back in your car to drive home it feels like your left hand. Yeah. Exactly. Definitely. Yeah, and so the the first day we ride out on Saturday morning, you know, a little bit to my chagrin it was 7:30 when he, when we actually woke up and got ready to ride after our experience with the magician the zombie magician at 3:30 in the morning. I'm hashtagging it right now on Instagram. <laughs> um but as we ride out, I'm in awe of of the landscape. And Brian Blair, you know, he's he's local fast guy, rider, um, works at the path as well. I'm like, this is amazing, Brian. And he says, it just keeps going. This is the tip of the iceberg. And all day, you just kept going around another corner, up another ledge, down another drop, just opening up into these amazing vistas. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah, def- like I said, definitely an awesome destination. I mean, obviously, Sedona has gotten more and more attention over the years. I, Oddly enough, I think I went there the first time 20 years ago. I think I was 13 years old when I went there the first time, um, kind of on a family vacation. And uh, it was awesome then, and I think now a lot more people know that it's awesome. Um, it's way more catered to mountain bikes. The trails are marked really well. Um, the town understands bikes and is uh, supportive of it. And, um, you know, we're seeing bike reviews and bike test camps and press releases going on in Sedona. It's all for good reason. So if you can, definitely visit there. And, uh, you know, a local shop in the area um, called uh, Over the Edge Bikes uh, rents a lot of high-end bikes there. So if you're traveling and want to get on a plane, you can fly into Phoenix, uh, grab a rental car, get up to Sedona, and um, you can uh, easily then rent a really high-end bike. So what kind of bikes did we ride out there, Nathan? Um, I rode my Nomad in in, in full regalia. <laughs> no, I, rode, I rode my Nomad. Skin wall tires? <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, nomad with full Enduro Race tires. Um, in hindsight, I probably could have done it on a more trail-friendly bike, but to Ox Point, the, the few super gnarly downhills that we encountered, I was really glad I had that bike. I was... Uh, we were, I think the only reason that made me kind of regret having a bike that long travel is we were there with some fast guys. Yeah. And uh, so everybody was riding like they meant it the whole time. There was some enthusiastic pedaling going on. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So I felt like I was, uh, I was working for it harder than I enjoyed it on the downhills. But when I had to keep up with those guys, uh, 
I was working for it. Yeah. Before you said that, I was kind of thinking to myself what a great peddler the Nomad was and how it couldn't have been that bad. And then you said that, and I was like, oh, yeah, it could have been that bad. (laughs) (laughs) Those people are peddling hard on efficient bikes all day long. Yep, definitely. And that's maybe a little bit of a difference between, like, uh, we we talked about the trance earlier on, and one of the guys, uh, Jake Sunshine Nelson, uh, who used to live here locally, strong rider, amazing downhiller, and even better person, uh, was out there riding on his trance, 140, travel on the rear. I think he's got a 150 on the front. Uh, and he yeah, was, 150 pike, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yep. he, he was he was ripping our legs off. <laughs> well, he's a strong pedaler, but the, it's interesting. The trance is just barely a better, better pedaler than the Nomad. But if you're going to be pedaling all day, it's going to add up. I think so. Yeah, definitely. And and the and the climbing in Sedona is so punchy that you're really plunging the pedals pretty hard. So that little extra travel, you're definitely sending the bike through. more bottom bracket hits too. Oh yeah, low, yeah, low, low, lower, yeah. A lot, a lot of crank hits. Um, and, you know, just something I wanted to bring up about, about Sedona is um, I really like riding there. Ock, you obviously really enjoyed the trip. Um, highly recommend people going. But re- remember that most of it is an advanced riding location. Um, there's a fair amount of exposure. you got to be comfortable with that. So um, I just guess put things in context and... Um, don't take your rookie friends or your new girlfriend that's just learning to ride out there. And take them on the and, H trails. And take them on the H trails. There are some easier trails there, for sure. Um, but uh, just be aware that the trails that we mentioned are are pretty much, they're expert trails. And you got to pedal to get to them. You do have to pedal to get to them, for sure. More than the pedaling, though, the expert aspect of it, the downhill. Exposure. <laughs> and exposure, both. You know, whether it be the really... Um, big downhill waterfall type roller seg- segments or the exposure uh, on some of these trails. Uh, what was the, the hangover? Hangover's got some exposure. Hangover sure. has some exposure. Yeah, that was, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> F-U-N, as Maxwell would say. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, all right, guys. Um, I think we, uh, Filled in a lot of questions, finally recapped the Sedona trip for some people and, uh, gave you some, uh, some updates on the shop. Once again, um, keep sending your questions to sales at the path bike shop.com. Um, we are once again, it takes us a little bit to get to them, but we will get to them. Um, we're very appreciative of everybody listening to the show and, uh, everybody participating by asking us questions and, uh, keep listening to us and the other shows on mountain bike radio. And, uh, don't forget when you're in Southern California, come by and, uh, visit the path bike shop. Even if, uh, if you've got something to buy, buy away even if you want to just come visit come visit fill up your camel back at our water cooler and move on exactly <laughs> no definitely whatever whatever you need and uh so with uh with that tonight uh we say good evening good evening good evening i've been waiting five